0: Anthropocene. Anthropocene. Alright, I'm recording now.
1: Welcome back to Week 6. This is
0: Episode 5. The most likely reason for the university to have money in Central America is actually for tax purposes.
2: As a democratic socialist, I would think of myself as a populist. Welcome back to the Maroon Weekly. It's Episode 5. We're about to go into seventh week. My name is Miles. I'm Austin. And we're going to go right into the news.
1: So on Monday, Professor Luigi Zingales fielded questions about his invitation of Steve Bannon at a town hall in Kent.
3: I... For, for myself, I'm particularly interested in uh, uh, the rise of populism uh, in the United States. And Bannon seems to be selling some kind of uh, nationalist populist with clearly uh, some racist component in it. Whether you like it or not, this challenge represents, I would say, 30% of the American people take it or leave it. And, uh, and I think this mainstream alternative should be confronted uh, in a serious
2: debate. On Wednesday, the Institute of Politics celebrated its fifth anniversary by hosting Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Mandel Hall.
1: The fifth anniversary actually isn't until April, though.
4: So getting young people's voices both as challengers and dreamers of a different world and ready to roll up their sleeves and desperate to just actually have an impact in shaping the world was hugely exciting for me and was key to actually changing the nature of political discourse in Canada. Because young people don't so much care as much about the partisan identity aspect of it, and they're really just focused on the substance. And the substance in a way that is naturally long-term. You know that what the world looks like in 50 years is going to have a direct impact on you, and how you actually weigh into making that difference matters today. We have, as a world right now, as a society, an awful lot to learn from all of you, from your approach, from your dynamism, but also from your willingness to challenge the way things have always been done and say, Why can't they be totally different? Why can't you speak to me like an intelligent human being instead of pretending that you're going to be able to scare me into voting one way or another or anger me into voting one way or another? That idea of civil, intelligent, rational discourse in politics is one that young people like you are demanding.
1: On Thursday, former White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci, the Mooch, spoke on campus to a crowd of almost 300 students at an event hosted by college republicans.
3: And I really do appreciate you guys saying 11 days because some people say 10, it hurts <coughs> <irks> my feelings. It's like 9% of my career. I'm not the guy that's going to fall in line and do what they want to do, and neither should you. Okay, the country's at stake. Okay, we got to fix the country. We've got to call balls and strikes the way we see them, and we got to focus on what is right or wrong, as opposed to what is left or right. Does everybody get that? Okay, I'm actually a social progressive, okay? I'm probably further to the left of most of the Democrats in this room. Uh, I've been a champion of marriage equality for 15 years. I gave money to four Republican senators in the state of New York to make gay marriage an equal right in the state of New York. Definitely not what I expected. Why not? Much more
1: substantive. Much more
3: reasoned. Yeah, yeah.
1: I was surprised by his vocabulary.
0: I'll say that.
2: I didn't think it was that. I mean, I think he was speaking confidently and professionally, and in this era we treat that like it's everything, but he didn't really say anything that was all that um, interesting from a policy perspective. didn't feel like he was speaking from talking points. This event went incredibly well. It reflected well on everyone. The questions were serious. Anthony was fantastic. This this is exactly how discussions should happen, and it sort of, I think, took the air out of people's desire to sort of grandstand at the expense of everyone else at the events. he was...
5: Did anyone grandstand?
2: No. Friday afternoon, 30 supporters of Grad Students United rallied outside Levi Hall and delivered a letter to the administration demanding that the university negotiate with them as a recognized union. At the same time, GSU's letter was delivered to President Zimmer as he was speaking at the inauguration of Barnard's new president, a former Chicago vice provost. So you just heard a few snippets of audio from Luigi Zingales' town hall. And actually last week I had the chance to sit down with Sam Joyce, a second year in the college and a member of UChicago's Young Democratic Socialists of America to talk about his involvement in the protests against Steve Bannon's invitation.
6: I'm Sam Joyce, I'm a second year student majoring in environmental studies and I am the co-chair of UChicago YDSA, which is the Young Democratic Socialists of America.
2: So as I understand it, YDSA is a pretty new organization.
6: Yeah, we got RSO approval officially only a couple weeks ago. We started up this fall.
2: I know there's a lot of like socialists on UChicago's campus. So, what is YDSA's specific bend?
6: So, we don't really have one, which is part of the one of the main reasons that we decided to found a YDSA chapter is that it's a multi-tendency organization. There's no need to sign on to a particular form of Trotskyism or a particular form of uh, Marxism that you think is correct to join. DSA. You just have to be in, in agreement on this general principle of democratic socialism, which is just yeah, yeah, the idea that we want to expand democracy in all spheres of life. So in our society, in our workplaces, in our political system, that's sort of our main goal. And we're not really specific on a tendency beyond that.
2: And that's a national organization that you're a chapter of?
6: Right. We're, uh, we're a branch of Chicago DSA, which is itself a branch of national DSA.
2: And how did you get involved with YDSA? What's your story?
6: So uh, I've been a DSA member since the, uh, a couple days after the presidential election because it seemed like a concrete way to get involved and fight back. For YDSA specifically, one of my friends posted a tweet saying that she was thinking about founding a YDSA chapter and wanted to know if anyone else was interested. And I said, yeah, sure. And so that's how we all got involved and got our first core nucleus of members. And we've grown since then.
2: And how big approximately would you say the Chicago branch of YDSA is?
6: Like 25 to 30 people probably at this point.
2: So my sort of contact with YDSA has been around the Steve Bannon invitation. I I was at your protest the day after that news came out. I've seen various Facebook posts and Twitter things about that. And I was wondering if I could just talk to you sort of about your perspective and the perspective of the organization on that. Yeah, sure thing. So a lot of the people who've been saying Bannon should be allowed to speak at campus have been catching this as like a free speech issue, have been saying that the like, anti-Bannon protests are about restricting Steve Bannon's free speech. We're worried about the state of free speech on this campus and the fact that these radical leftists are trying to protest against you know, a legitimate speaker. People who think Steve Bannon is racist don't know what he speaks about. They just listen to media coverage of him rather than read what he actually says. He promotes a nationalist message, but that nation- it's not a white nationalist message. It has to do with everyone who's a citizen of the United States. To me, it's more about free speech and the First Amendment. And if, for example, we had a leftist speaker come to campus, I would still, and they were protesting him saying he should speak, I would still kind pro- of protest that. Mm. Even though I don't, might not agree with him, I still would kind of protest for his right to speak, because that's the First Amendment, that's America. what I've seen, it seems more that the argument that you and other organizations are making is more that the university has an obligation to its students to allow speech that's like valuable to the discussion at the university and that Steve Bannon has ideas that are not conducive to that sort of dialogue.
6: Right so practically even the people who say that they're on this free expression side have their own limits. Uh, There was pretty widespread outrage after professors in gala's said that he would invite early Hitler to campus. And even Professor Zingales said that he didn't think he would have anything to learn from inviting late Hitler. So I think everyone has these limits because the issue isn't just free speech, it's the issue of what the university is endorsing. What Because when you're speaking at the University of Chicago, that's not something that everyone gets to do. It's something that's limited to a very select set of speakers. And so when the university invites someone like Steve Bannon, they're saying, not just that this is someone who has a right to be heard, it's this is someone with a valuable perspective. This is someone we want to host because we think his thoughts are insightful. And that's where we disagree.
2: And so it's not that you're saying Steve Bannon shouldn't say these views in public. It's just that the university shouldn't be the, providing a venue for someone with these kind of views.
6: Right. Like if he wants to walk down University Avenue and just say things like I'm not going to stop him. The issue is when the university invites him here and provides his accommodation and puts him up in the quad club and uh, sort of gives all of these things that he needs to have a speech happen and promotes it on the official channels, all that sort of
2: thing. One thing you mentioned uh, was at Zingali's town hall. Actually, my one of my fellow podcasters, Grace, asked whether he would have Hitler speak on campus, and he gave a sort of an interesting response involving Mao and Hitler and Stalin and the distinction between young hitler and older hitler
3: so would i have invited mao for example in uh, to the university probably yes uh mao killed more people than probably Hitler and stalin put together uh but uh, i think that uh, uh nonetheless i think i would have a conversation with him yes uh in uh, would i invited uh hitler i think i would distinguish uh early hitler from later Hitler. i think that uh, Uh, would have been very useful to know ahead of time what it was about. A lot of people underestimated the risk of Hitler because they actually did not interview him early on.
5: So when you distinguish early and late Hitler, the distinguishing line that you're drawing in essence is not so much that he became more violent but that he was no longer productive as a speaker because what had happened already happened.
3: No, no, it's it's both. Of course, this is in uh, uh, I'm, first of all, I'm not so sure that uh, in, uh, let's say, 1942 or 43 was a, anything useful you could learn from Hitler at the time. Uh, second, was already known to, to what I've done. Uh, and so I don't see as that a particularly productive thing. In, uh, and I saw
2: in on Twitter you had sort of a reaction uh, to that. I was wondering if maybe you wanted to talk about that at all.
6: Yeah, so that was just very weird to hear because it's sort of like the number one rule in public relations that if someone asks you about Hitler you give the anti-Hitler answer because Hitler was a bad guy and we understand that he there was only really one Hitler like he was bad in 1919 he was bad in 1923 like he was bad in 1942, which is where Zengalis put sort of the cutoff line for that.
2: Yeah, and it, it sort of forces you to make a distinction about what's acceptable Hitlerish behavior and what's not yeah. okay Hitler behavior. Yeah, and it's also
6: very weird because like he wasn't exactly lacking for newspaper interviews. Like he got a ton of press. He wrote a book. Like we knew what he stood for. Like. Well beforehand, yeah,
2: And he was a politician. He gave campaign speeches, presumably, yeah, things he, in public.
6: He there was a public trial where he was tried for attempting to overthrow the government. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know what Zingales was going for there. It was very confusing.
2: Yeah, that sort of seems like it's been a theme of Zingales' coverage. After having announced that he was inviting Steve Bannon, I mean, he had this thing about Hillary. Also, had apparently invited um, some professor because he thought he didn't understand racial issues in America enough. And at least from my perspective, it seems maybe like he hadn't quite thought through all the possibilities of what this invitation would entail before announcing that he was inviting Steve Bannon to come talk.
6: Yeah, I think that's most of it. I think that he really hasn't thought through all of the implications of it. I think he saw Steve Bannon as a speaker that he thought he would like to hear, but he hasn't, like, on any issue of safety, that's probably... The thing that I'm most concerned about is safety on campus when Steve Bannon's entourage and all of his fan base shows up, and Zingales has just sort of waved all of that off as being above his pay grade.
3: Again, uh, security is above my pay grade, but I'm very happy to first of all bring these uh, uh, suggestions to who uh, deals with security and uh, trying to do the best to to isolate. I think that. Uh, our goals are, are common. I think that uh, we need to isolate violence on uh, it, whoever it comes from the political spectrum. I think that violence has no reason to exist on campus. Hopefully there's no reason to exist, period, but particularly on, on campus. And so,
6: My friend Grace asked a question about what his limit was, sort of trying to figure out, like, what is the line?
5: My question is what it is, which is, do you have any specific criteria for what you do and do not consider? acceptable speech within the context of your panel because you have already conceded that there is a point where it will become unacceptable. So you have conceded that not all speech is acceptable. So there must be some point then where we make the decision. And I want to know, as the person controlling
4: this event, what is your cutoff point?
6: Because as Gulliz said, he wouldn't tolerate hate speech from the podium, that he would cut it off if Bannon veered into that territory, but that he didn't really have a set line for what that would look like and when pressed on the issue he couldn't really specify like this is what i think is too bad for the university
2: it seems like a lot of folks who disagree with steve bannon disagree with him on the premise that he is someone who engages in like hate speech and that kind of rhetoric so if luigi is not interested in that what do you think his goal is of hearing from steve bannon
6: he said his goal is to learn more about populism in the U.S., which is very sort of nebulous to me. Like, I don't think he's really articulated what specifically he plans to ask Bannon or what specifically the subjects will be for the debate, uh, because he's just said it's going to be about, like, populism and sort of the issues that are connecting the U.S. to other European countries, because he's he's published in the, uh, I believe it was the New York Times pretty recently, saying that, Trump was a lot like Berlusconi and that he thinks that there's sort that's of... These... That's
2: Luigi was published? Yeah. Saying that?
6: Yeah. that sort of these, these common ties and that he seems to want to talk to Bannon about those but that he really hasn't specified anything more of a subject than populism. Mm-hmm. it's a pretty limited take on populism which is really just a rhetorical style and a sort of attitude towards politics more than it is like a coherent ideology so I don't know if Bannon is really like the best choice for getting that at least not on his own or one-on-one because I think it's a diverse tradition that runs through a lot of America from like William Jennings Bryan to Huey Long it's traditionally been something that's common on both the right and the left, and I think that inviting Bannon really doesn't give you the full scope of populism if that's really what he wants to investigate.
2: And what you and others are upset about with regards to that is not necessarily, I think, that Steve Bannon is a populist. It's sort of his specific brand of populism and the, the messaging of that, right?
6: Right. Like, as a democratic socialist, I would think of myself as a populist. I advocate policies that are like for the people, against sort of the establishment, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think that the issue with Bannon is that sort of the specific policies that he advocates and the specific rhetorical styles he engages in are not necessarily ones that I think are conductive to a healthy society is probably the nicest way of putting it. Uh, Yeah, he dabbles in hate speech.
2: Yeah, and the other thing, I guess, is that people who are saying he should be allowed to talk are sort of waving that aside and saying he doesn't dabble in hate speech or that somehow he his brand of populism is not the same as the white nationalist kind of populism we've been seeing in america for the past two years plus and they've been sort of distancing steve bannon specifically from that group even though steve bannon is renowned as the ringleader of that group
6: yeah so the argument is usually like that just because he has been sort of enabling this group through his presence at Breitbart, which he said was like this home to the alt-right, that he is himself is not embracing it just because he publishes it and publishes writers affiliated with it and signs off on all these headlines and is at least to some degree responsible for all of the things that Breitbart has produced. So I think it's sort of a legalistic distinction that because... They're arguing that because he's not directly responsible, he ought to be in the clear. And I don't think you can really separate the man from the culture that he has encouraged. The decision to include a black crime column on Breitbart, like, that's not something that gets signed off on unless the CEO wants it to happen. So I don't think he can be held, like, not to be responsible for what Breitbart has done.
2: And so, do you have a message for the, the U Chicago people protesting? That Bandit should be allowed to speak based sort of on that general argument. Do you have have anything you would want to say to them or like have a dialogue or understand why they believe that?
6: I mean I feel like we've definitely been going back and forth on this issue for a while. I don't know if there would be much that I could say to convince them but I do think that uh, just asking them to consider the broader community consider the impacts not just of one individual speaking but of him bringing his people and what that does to the campus environment. One of the big campaigns that YDSA is working on right now is the uh, Lift the Ban Coalition, which is a group aiming to uh, remove Illinois' ban on rent control so that we would have the option of uh, setting some regulations on how rents work in Chicago and making sure that people aren't just thrown out because the landlord decides to raise the rent 200% to clear people out for new development. So that's one of our big things. Uh, another one that we've been involved with in the past is the Save Our Schools campaign. Uh, the mayor and CPS school board have decided to shut down all of the public high schools in Englewood, which is only a couple miles away from here, and leave no neighborhood, high school, no neighborhood public high school uh, for the 2018-2019 school year. In, and the plan is eventually to build a new public high school, but that means that the people who are currently going to high school in Englewood, the people who will enter high school next year, just don't have a place to go. They'll either have to go out of the neighborhood or leave CPS in some way. And so that's another campaign that we've been involved with, the Save Our Schools. What we are working on is uh, a local schools campaign. So each school in Chicago has a local school council, which is, Six, peop- six or seven people uh, that gets to make decisions like hiring the principal, like approving the school's budget for the year. So we're running uh, several candidates for that in the elections coming up this year. We're also looking at the 2019 elections for aldermen. Uh, my friend Ugo Okere is running in the 40th ward, which is up Ravenswood-Edgewater area. And he's a YDSA member. He's a senior at Loyola right now. So we're hoping to get some new leadership in the 40th ward and hopefully some more DSA members running for alderman in 2019.
5: This week I had a chance to sit down with news reporter Spencer Demner to talk about his article on the university's offshore investments.
0: I'm Spencer Demner, I'm a news reporter with uh, Maroon.
5: You have been on the podcast before. What did you talk to us about last time? Uh, last
0: time, I was talking about the rent dispute with Grounds of Being and the Divinity School Administration.
5: And what are you here to talk to us about this time?
0: So this time, it's the university's offshore holdings, specifically their offshore holdings in Central America and the Caribbean.
5: And what does university have in Central America and the Caribbean?
0: So, um, the answer is about $2.8 billion. We don't know what and we don't know exactly where. Um, but what happens is that the university has to declare what's called a Form 990. This is a standard nonprofit return, and for the past few years... Wait,
5: sorry to interrupt. Since when is the university nonprofit? Can you explain that to me?
0: Yes. So most private universities, or at least most kind of private universities like Chicago, have nonprofit status, and so that's, that's just because they're treated as educational institutions. Usually, like, that purpose makes them exempt. And so there, there are private... For-profit universities, you'll hear a lot about places like the University of Phoenix, but they're less common and they're newer. Most kind of non-profit, research-intensive universities are nonprofits.
5: And because of that, the university has to fill out this 994. Yes,
0: yeah. And so recently, not always, but for the past few years, what that form is required is that institutions declare in what region their investments are held. And so the university declares kind of standard, I think they have about $400 million in Europe, um, smaller amounts in various other regions, and they declare $2.8 billion in the region labeled as Central America and the Caribbean. We don't know what that money is, what it's invested in. What we do know is that the university declares in another part of the form that they control a subsidiary called Phoenix Overlay Fund. Phoenix Overlay Fund is based out of the Cayman Islands, which is, of course, in the Caribbean, counts as part of the Central American and Caribbean region. It's a British overseas territory with very low taxes, and so one supposition could be that some or all of that money is in Phoenix Overlay.
5: And you also mentioned there are a lot of holdings in Europe. Why is it more striking to you that the university has money in Phoenix Overlay as opposed to some of these other investments it has in Europe?
0: Right. So the investments in Europe could be very significant for all we know. What's, what's kind of special about the Central American and Caribbean investments is that that's an area with a lot of low-tax jurisdictions. So the Cayman Islands, um, but also places like Bermuda, um, are commonly used for purposes like tax re- reduction of tax burdens. Um, and so that's, that's sort of something that would strike you as, as unique, especially since there, there are not a lot of kind of organic investment opportunities in this region. You wouldn't necessarily expect a university to have $3 billion here. And, in fact, the university might not have very much of that money in Central America and the Caribbean. It's just that legally everything is declared based on the company that, that owns it. So if the university had a lot of investments in the United States or Europe or any other part of the world possessed through a Central American or Caribbean subsidiary, that's how they declare it on their taxes.
5: Do we know how big this Phoenix Overlay firm is? Like how much money other entities have put into Phoenix Overlay?
0: So not really, no. Um, what we do know is the transfers. and The university declares a few sort of transfers on relatively small scales, you know, a few million dollars to the fund and a few million dollars back to the university We don't know how much the total capitalization of that firm is. We don't know how much of the $2.8 billion is in that firm versus somewhere else. Um, All we know is that there is a firm and that it gets money from the university periodically, and also the total amount that the university has in that region. There have been some universities that have come under pressure for this, especially last November there was a publication of what's called the Paradise Papers, a big leak from a law firm in Bermuda. Um, And a few universities, I believe Texas Christian University, got slammed because they had these big fossil fuel investments, Northeastern as well. We don't know if that's what's going on. The most likely reason for the university to have money in Central America is actually for tax purposes because there are rules about which kinds of income from nonprofits are and aren't taxed. Generally speaking, if I'm a nonprofit and I just invest my money, I don't have to pay taxes on those returns because then the returns presumably are going back to my tax exempt purpose. The difference is that if you borrow money and then invest it, as far as the government is concerned, that's the same thing as just being a trading firm or participating in the market. And so, similarly, if someone borrows on your behalf, you have to pay taxes on that as well. If I am a nonprofit and I put money into a hedge fund, but then that hedge fund is borrowing to increase my return, I am responsible from a tax purpose for paying for that income as if I were just a corporation. what the
5: University of Chicago currently doing out of the ordinary in any way?
0: So the answer I got is not really no. Like you said, all of those different universities have a record of doing this. Um, just doing a very cursory check of kind of other universities' tax returns, a lot of other schools have amounts that are declared that are in line with what UChicago declared, sometimes even larger, and it's because of this tax reason. If you If you move the investment in something like a hedge fund overseas, And then you buy a stake in a company, and then the company buys a stake in a hedge fund. Adding that extra step, which is legal, prevents you having to pay taxes on the returns from that hedge fund and from the borrowing the hedge fund does. And so basically, everyone wants to do that because any nonprofit with a large endowment, which means a lot of universities, wants to maximize its return. And that means investing broadly, investing in things like hedge funds. And so the answer seems to be this is a very common practice. But it's not a practice that people have gotten a lot of scrutiny over recently because. It's just not something that had entered the public consciousness. And so I think a lot of the leaks that have happened in terms of tax evasion in Central America and the Caribbean um, and things like the Paradise Papers are raising a level of consciousness that you hadn't previously seen, just in terms of the way that people are strategizing their taxes, even nonprofits and universities.
5: And just to be fair, I'd like to read a statement here from university spokesperson Jeremy Manier that you included in your initial reporting. Um, Manier said that investments are essential to the long-term management of the university's endowment, which is a resource maintained in perpetuity that makes the university's fundamental contributions to society possible, adding that the university has investments in the U.S. and other countries for this purpose, and these are disclosed each year as required by law. Mm -hmm. Now, you've gone through these disclosures, this form that we've talked about. What else do you want to know? Where are you going to go from here?
0: So I think that a lot of the next questions would be what are the characteristics of this investment you know 2.8 billion dollars really is a lot in the context of the overall endowment that's i think over a third of 7.8 billion which or whatever the most recent figure was and so i think it's worth knowing is this just you know a tax dodge and kind of a standard tax dodge or is there something else going on you know is there is there anything an investment in that area that people would be annoyed about if it was discovered is there like a fossil fuel investment or you know Any any other sort of investment which would be interesting on its own terms. The tax portion itself, again, it's sort of surprising from an outside perspective, but it's fairly standard for nonprofits. Then I I think the next step from here is to sort of understand what is the university doing, and at a broader level, like where does it have its money. And
5: how much of this information is available online if listeners were interested in looking at some of these numbers themselves? What could they do?
0: Absolutely. So the best way to get a lot of these numbers, ProPublica, which is a great sort of investigative newsroom, does an online search tool for nonprofit tax returns. If you search uh, nonprofit explorer, uh, and then sometimes it's hard to find the name, but every nonprofit university will have its returns up there. Schedule Schedule F of the form contains regional breakdowns, Schedule R, I believe, tells you which entities are owned by the universities. And so, for instance, that's how we found out about Phoenix Overlay. Um, And so if you're interested in sort of looking into these things yourself, I would just look that up. You know, any nonprofit, corporation, university that you're interested in, you should be able to find that online and you can see if there's anything that interests you there. Thanks for having me on the podcast again.
5: Great. Thanks, Spencer. And we hope to hear from you again soon. Absolutely. his article yet, check it out. If you like what you're hearing, check out our weekly arts cast, dropping every Wednesday morning. This week, learn about the Carillion Bells from a man who plays them, acapella from two girls who sing it, and poetry from a quite poetic poet. Hosted by Max Miller, Sean Park, and Samuel Landon.
1: Now we're going to hit you with an update from David Wyman of The Citizen Bulletin.
7: On the local level, we have Mayor Rahm Emanuel announcing that Chicago Police Department officers will be equipped to administer Naloxone, which is an opioid overdose antidote. It's actually a movement that's been going on in uh, local police departments throughout Cook County where they're having a countywide initiative to give the police officers Naloxone so that they can have a treatment approach rather than a punitive approach towards the opioid epidemic. Going up to the state level, State Senator Raul announced that a bill would give individual citizens the right to legally challenge permits issued by state regulators.
5: Why is that needed?
7: Well, it's actually a very complex matter. Uh, There was a dispute regarding a mine in La Salle County and um, the environmental effects that that mine would have on nearby property owners. And what this bill does— What
5: mine is is that? Like a coal mine? It's it's
7: essentially uh, like a sand material mine, sort sort of like a raw materials and the idea is that um, the bill would give any individual citizen the right to challenge any individual permit, which would open up a lot of litigation, but on the good side, it will give a lot of due process rights. So there's a lot of back and forth going on about that. On the federal level, President Trump signed a bipartisan budget bill that averts a government shutdown and addresses some congressional spending concerns, but does not provide a fix to the DACA program. It's uh, very concerning that um, that both sides have been talking about fixing the DACA program for uh, a long time, and th- they've still been unable to come to a consensus agreement about that, and it leaves a lot of the undocumented people who are protected by that program in limbo. This presidency is the first time that there's been a government shutdown with one party controlling the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and having the government be shut down. So this is the first time ever? Of, yeah, that the party, to my knowledge, that there's been, like, total control Of the government by one party, and they haven't been able to come to an agreement. So, we're seeing a lot of, I think, instability um, in terms of the ability to govern right now that we haven't seen in the past.
5: Well, I'm from New Jersey, currently living in Illinois, so Ah. (laughs) I'm no stranger to government shutdowns. I
7: see. (laughs) Every week, we send out a uh, newsletter containing these highlights and much more news that you can get uh, in your inbox. And coming up, we actually have elections for state and local offices. And we're going to have a special edition coming out on that so that everyone can know uh, who's going to be on the ballot and what are going to be the important issues in the election.
5: And if you want to learn more, Citizen Bulletin has actually been partnering quite a bit with the Maroon. We've been including Citizen Bulletin updates on our newsletters um, as well as our website. Absolutely. So check it out. And thanks for coming by, David. Thank you.
1: What's coming up this week?
2: Well, on Monday in Foster Hall Room 103, there's going to be a lecture entitled Coffee and the Anthropocene.
1: Thursday at 6 p.m., there's a poetry reading by Professor G.C. Waldrip in the Logan Center.
2: On Friday at 3 p.m., there's going to be a self-care workshop in Reynolds Club. And if you want more information about any of these events and more, you can check out chicagomaroon.com slash events.
5: So, Austin, hit me with a sick tech fact for the week.
2: So
1: this week, we had one of the most anticipated trials of the year that took place between Google's self-driving car division, Waymo, and Uber. Waymo alleged that Uber had utilized some of its confidential technologies in its self-driving car, more specifically patents related to the LADAR sensors. Over the course of the week, however, it became apparent that Waymo's case was m- much weaker than expected. Just this past Friday, February 9th, Waymo and Uber reached a settlement for 0.3% of Uber stock, which equates to roughly
2: $245 million. Jump change. Yeah.
1: Actually, though. It, like, it actually jump change for like, both the companies. Wow.
2: Yeah. That's all we've got for you this week. Thank you to Sam. Actually, to-
5: one update for you listeners, we actually uh, voted in our new slate just hours ago, so congratulations to Pete Greeve, Yoram Choi, Kay Yang, and Katie Aiken.
2: Anyway, thank you to Sam Joyce for sitting down and talking to me about YDSA. Thank
1: you to Spencer Demner for talking to Grace about the university's offshore accounts.
2: Thanks to Aaron Senden for the great tunes.
1: Ben Kent and the entire Logan Cage staff for our audio equipment.
2: And Catherine McDonald for her continued unwavering support of this project. Catch us next week, Monday at 9 a.m.